Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I am James Barty in Washington. Today is Monday, December 12, and here are some of the stories we are covering. The U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit kicks off tomorrow, Tuesday, in Washington, D.C. Our expectation is that, uh, first, the cooperation must be strengthened between individual African countries and the United States on the bilateral level and also on uh, the continental level. Uganda activists urge respect for human rights. Eswatini public transport workers begin the first of two-day monthly strikes tomorrow, Tuesday and Wednesday. A reaction from Guinea to U.S. sanctions on former President Alpha Conde. South Sudan's SPLMIO comments on President Kiyo's selection as candidate in 2024. His Excellency Dr. Michel cannot be part of that ticket because the aforementioned ticket it is for the SPLMRG faction. His Excellency Dr. Michel is not a member of the SPLMRG faction. And critical aid arrives in conflict raiding northern Ethiopia as ceasefire holds. Those stories plus Samsung O'Malley Sports are coming up on Daybreak Africa. Africa Leaders Summit kicks up tomorrow, Tuesday, in Washington, D.C., where President Joe Biden will host about 50 African leaders, their delegations, and Africans in the private sector and diaspora communities in the United States. VOA correspondent Maria Madialo sat down with the Dean of the African Diplomatic Corps in Washington. Serge Mambouli is the Republic of Congo's ambassador to the United States and the Dean of the African Diplomatic Corps. He told VOA that he's been working with White House and State Department officials for months preparing for the U.S.-African Leaders' Summit. Our expectation is that, uh, first, the cooperation must be strengthened between individual African countries and the United States on the bilateral level and also on uh, the continental level between Africa and the United States. We want this summit to be also the contribution for the United States to the success of the agenda uh, 2063 of the African Union. Agenda 2063 prioritizes inclusive social and economic development, continental and regional integration, democratic governance, and peace and security to reposition the continent as a dominant player in the global arena, the African Union says. We, Africa, we need uh, energy, we need infrastructure, we need financing, and uh, we need good health to develop Africa. So, if uh, this summit can contribute to the cooperation and to the realization of our cooperation between the United States industry sectors, uh, mainly, and including other sectors, that will help a lot. President Barack Obama convened the first U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit in 2014. Since then, a lot has happened. Jude Moore, senior policy fellow at the Center for Global Development, says this year's summit comes at a crucial time. On the African side, they will be expecting the U.S. to take a position on some of the issues that are now confronting the continent. Inflation, fuel, the war in Ukraine and the impact on lives and livelihoods. But more importantly, this is going to come after COP27. And African leaders are going to be looking to the U.S. for leadership in responding to the climate crisis. Last year, a U.N. report on Africa's climate found the continent was heating up more and faster than other regions in the world. Yet Africa is responsible for less than 4% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions. 
Mombuli addressed the needs of the Congo Basin Blue Fund, an effort to help the region's countries to rely less on forest-based resources. For instance, in the Congo Basin, in the Blue Fund within the Congo Basin, that needs to be funded if we have to continue to protect the planet on our side. Promises have been made by different countries, but we haven't seen any deep pocket action. The Congo Basin is home to some of the largest tropical rainforests in the world. The summit opens on Tuesday and ends on Thursday. Mariama Diallo, VOA News, Washington. The acting press secretary for South Sudan First Vice President Riyak Mishar says current conditions in the country are not conducive for holding free and fair elections. Puok Bof Baluang says the creation of favorable conditions begins with the implementation of Chapter 2 of the Peace Agreement on Security, followed by approval of a permanent constitution and an electoral commission and the return of South Sudanese refugees and internally displaced people. This after the country's ruling SPLM party last week nominated President Salva Kiir to run for president in 2024. Baluang tells me the SPLM party should focus on implementing the Arusha peace agreement and wait until the party's national convention to choose a flag bearer. He says first Vice President Riyak Mishal remains the deputy president of the interim government. Our position regarding the SPLM IG nominating President Salva Kiir for the party ticket in the coming election. It is an internal business of the SPLM IG. They can nominate whoever they think that they can run or win the race for the election. It is a normal procedures from all parties, but from our side, we would love the SPLM IG to also concentrate on the implementation of the peace agreement because that revitalized peace agreement contain the prerequisites that needed to conduct free and uh, credible elections. Therefore, we urge them to expedite the process of the implementation of uh, the roadmap, which is the extension of uh, the transitional period. Will Deputy President Riyak Mishal be a part of the ticket in 2024? Or does he intend to contest the elections on his own? Well, uh, His Excellency Dutorek Mishal cannot be part of that ticket because the aforementioned ticket, it is for the SPLM-RG faction. His Excellency Dutorek Mishal is not a member of the SPLM-RG faction. Whether that he will run a different ticket of the SPLM IO or not, this is something that will be discussed by the SPLM-IO leadership in our coming meeting. Earlier this year, I spoke with Thomas Cirillo. I asked him about the possibility of elections. He told me the current atmosphere in South Sudan is not conducive for any elections. Do you share this view? In other words, does the deputy president feel that uh, South Sudan can hold elections in 2023 or 2024? Um, we might concur with General Thomas Shrilo to conduct election and it will not be an, a sham election, rather a free, a transparent election. There's a Brexit for the election to be at, at the place before conducting the election. First, implementation of the agreement, precisely Chapter 2, which is a security arrangement. And by that, we don't mean only the graduation 
for deployment of the unified forces, but that also means to create a conducive environment. All the rights must be granted to the people of South Sudan, the right of association, all the freedoms such as the freedom of speech, the freedom of association, and so on and so forth. Also, we uh, must have a permanent constitution in the country and also the Political Parties Act to be passed by the parliament and ascended by the president and to form the electrical committee or commission and our refugees and IDPs to return home to their respective villages and towns and more importantly to conduct census in the country. Paul Bof Balwang is the acting press secretary for South Sudan First Vice President Riyak Mashar. He was speaking with me from the South Sudan capital, Juba. Political activists in Uganda commemorated this year's UN Human Rights Day on December 10th with a call to end gender-based violence. Others called for the end of kidnapping of opponents and their release from jail. Reporter Mugumi Davis Rakarinji has more from Kampala. Human rights activists use the day to call for an end to some violations that they say are taking place in the country. The country representative for UN Women in Uganda, Paulina Chiwangu, says she's alarmed by the rate of rights violations meted out against women and girls. We see increased teenager pregnancies and child marriage that we have seen in Uganda. You know, I left Uganda about 10 years ago and the situation was not like this. Coming back, the level of teenager pregnancy have reached the state that is a pandemic. It's really disturbing. The number of child pregnancies and child marriages wasn't the country as the result of the lockdown introduced to prevent the spread of COVID-19 in the country. The United Nations Population Fund says more than 350,000 teenage pregnancies were registered in 2020 and 200,000 more in 2021. Parliamentarian Esther Naluima, a member of Uganda's largest opposition party, the National Inter Platform, says she's concerned with limited political and press freedoms. She's asking the Uganda Human Rights Commission to act swiftly and ensure people's rights are respected. She notes that the government closed Facebook and other social media websites preceding the 2021 elections. Opposition members on a daily basis are getting frustrated in this country. When we look at that significant continuous enforced disappearance of the children of Uganda, if at all it's your children that is going through what many are going through, are you able to continue saying that sitting comfortably in your chair that human rights are observed? Closure of social space. When you look at Facebook, is there a reason why Uganda, the Facebook, cannot be accessed? Maria Mwangadia is the head of Uganda Human Rights Commission. I want to remind everyone that I'm a humble servant of Parliament and of Uganda. I'm still open for any information, especially with particulars, not just general ones, about torture, abduction, kidnapping, disappearance of any, any Ugandan, regardless of their political uh, leanings. The government acknowledges the disappearances, but says those taken into custody are criminals. Activists are calling on the judiciary to ensure the speed of trials for all suspects. For VOA News, Ayamu Gume, Davis Rwakarinji, Nikampala, Uganda.
You are listening to Daybreak Africa on the Voice of America. I am James Barty in Washington. Today is Monday, December 12. Still to come on our program, Samson O'Malley Sports. Fourteen public transport workers say they will start the first of their two days a month strikes tomorrow, Tuesday and Wednesday in defiance of a government ban. The group plans to shut down public transport to force the release of two members of parliament, Basidi Mabuza and Mtadeni Dube. They were arrested and jailed in July last year while delivering a petition calling for democratic reforms and charged with promoting political terrorism. The government says their fate is in the hands of the judiciary and has described the strike as illegal. Stex Nkambule is General Secretary of the Swaziland Transport, Communications and Allied Workers Union. He tells me that transport workers will stay home Tuesday and Wednesday and two days each month hereafter until the MPs are released. The overview push of these um, actions from last year, it's general democratization of the country in terms of uh, calling for a people-centered government. And then at the center of it, it is uh, the incarcerated MPs, the members of parliament who have been in jail for over 18 months now, which have been part of the conversation in terms of saying the country must democratize. And then there is, uh, uh, again, quite a number of demands that deals with uh, improved conditions of service for the transport workers. Petition was tabled before government on um, October 2021, and government had to set commissions to look into these issues. And up until now, it's not intangible except for lip service that keeps coming from the government. And then we have taken a firm position to say we're going to accelerate the pressure and ensure that... Um, the country listens to the issues and grievances of the workers. So what form will your strike take? After all, you are just public transport workers. Well, James, the strategic position we have taken now is we just don't step out of our houses. We don't show up for work. And uh, there is no movement of uh, transport of any form. And um, people get uh, seated at home and uh, the whole economy comes to a stance. The government says your shutdown will be illegal and it has gone to court to stop you. Are you not concerned this might lead to some violence? If there is any person uh, that becomes responsible for violence, it's the government. Over time, they have used the army and live ammunition on workers. So the best way to keep our comrades safe is for them to stay at home. And um, the issue of legality of a strike or not, I mean, really, if we have courts that are really independent and discharging justice, the MPs that have spent over 18 months in prison, they ought not to be there. They didn't kill anyone. We've seen people who have killed one another and they're still roaming around on the street. Some of them have been granted bail. In any event, there is no angle within which government ought to have taken the matter to court. Sticks, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you very much, Brian. Sticks Kambule is General Secretary of the Swaziland Transport, Communications and Allied Workers Union. He was speaking with me from the capital, Mbabani. A Guinean opposition politician says U.S. sanctions on former President Alpha Conde should serve as a warning to other would-be Guinean presidents to focus on doing the people's business 
and not enriching themselves or violating the rights of the people. The French press agency reported over the weekend that the United States has imposed sanctions on former Guinean President Conde for using violence against opponents before a coup ousted him last year. The wire agency says the move would block any assets in the U.S. and criminalize any transactions with him. Abu Bakr Siddiqui Ouattara is the spokesperson for Liberal Bloc Party President Fayad Milimono. He tells me that whatever county properties that the United States will confiscate belong to the people of Guinea and should be returned to the country. We were expecting this from the beginning, but it has come at a time that we were losing hope. Thinking that, yes, it's finished. The former president will no more be uh, like uh, sanctioned. Nothing will be done against him after all that uh, happened in his uh, presidency. But hearing this news is a kind of uh, deliverance. We tell ourselves that, yeah, okay, now everybody will know that when you become president, you have to pay attention because people are watching on you. So we just expect that, yes, people have proof of what they're sanctioning. And uh, that should not only be on the U.S. side. The government also has to take measures because uh, a lot of bad things have been done in this country. I think the former president, uh, he and his administration officials were being investigated by the military junta. What do you think they are going to do now? There is even a procedure against him here uh, before the justice, the Guinean justice which has not come to the end yet. So this is another issue that has come. So maybe it will just comfort the government saying that, yes, this last government was going into uh, many bad things, which were corruption, this uh, violating the human rights and all those things. So I think the government should be, uh, must be in a kind of way uh, comfortable in what is going on. The sanctions said that uh, former President Alpha Conde's property in the United States will be frozen. Do you think uh, the military government there might want to claim these properties? It should be the military government or the next government coming. If Alpha Conde's properties have been taken over there, those properties are Guinean property. It's the Republic of the Guinea property. So they will just take it, but I think if the next government will be responsible, they will surely ask for those properties because they were from the public fund. Abu Bakr Siddiqui Ouattara is the spokesperson for Guinea's Liberal Bloc Party President Faya Milimono. You are speaking with me in front of Guinean capital, Kunakri. Aid agencies report that they now have unhindered access to Ethiopia's northern Tigray, Afar, and Amhara regions. They say the November 2nd peace agreement signed between the Ethiopian government and the rebel Tigray People's Liberation Front is holding. Lisa Schlein reports. Aid agencies report they now have unhindered access to Ethiopia's northern Tigray, Afar, and Amhara regions. They say the November 2nd peace agreement signed between the Ethiopian government and the rebel Tigray People's Liberation Front is holding. Millions of people, especially in Tigray, have been largely deprived of food, medicine, and other essentials throughout the two-year conflict. Since the peace treaty was signed, UNHCR representative in Ethiopia, Mamadou Dianbald, says his agency and partners have been able to increase the level of assistance and protection within the region. Speaking from the capital, Addis Ababa, he says as of this week, 
The UNHCR has been able to send in 61 trucks loaded with much-needed relief supplies into Tigray. This is um, a game changer. Uh, it is a it is an opportunity for us. Um, will it last or, or, or no? I you know I, I don't have those capabilities to, to predict that. Things are remain always fragile, but all steps taken by both parties are very encouraging. Ball says UNHCR has relocated 16,000 Eritrean refugees to the recently established Alamwatch site in the Amhara region. It also has assisted more than 7,000 Eritreans who had been stranded in two other camps in western Tigray so that they can rebuild their lives and stand on their own. He says he met a recently relocated refugee a week ago who told him how relieved he was that his children could finally go back to school after more than two years. The fact that they were resuming education, that was indeed a heartbreaking to hear um, that uh, during all this time they could not have it and uh, very much relieved that we are able to help um, um, refugees, um, children resume education and start normal life, but also uh, the impact of that on the families that they have been uh, hosted. Bal says the UNHCR also is working closely with local authorities in northern Ethiopia to support Ethiopians displaced by the conflict. Between January and October, he says, the agency has provided various protection services, shelter, household items, and other services to more than 2 million internally displaced people. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. Time now for Daybreak Africa Sports. And here is Samson O'Malley in Abuja, Nigeria. A very good Monday morning to you, Samson. Good Monday morning to you too, James. We begin the sport in Qatar, where the Atlas Lions have begun their preparations ahead of their crunch FIFA World Cup semi-final clash with defending champions France on Wednesday. Morocco captain Roman Saï says he will give everything to be fit against France on Wednesday, having been stretched off 57 minutes into their win over Portugal. Morocco are the first African nation to advance to the World Cup semi-finals and just the third country outside of Europe and South America to reach the semis, the last done by co-host South Korea in 2002. Away from the World Cup, the much-anticipated draws for the CAF Champions League and the CAF Confederations Cup will take place on Monday. A star-studded list of African football legends, including former winners of the CAF Champions League and the CAF Confederations Cup, will be part of Monday's draw. The CAF Champions League draw will mark the 25th anniversary of CAF's most prestigious inter-club competition. And now to West Africa, where the National Olympic Committee of Sierra Leone has elected Prince Vandi Swali as its new president. Swali replaced Dr. Patrick Kuka as the new head of the NOC Sierra Leone. Kuka was re-elected unopposed as president in 2019 during the Bodies Congress at the Olympic Africa Sports Center in Godrich. In cricket news, the Tanzania Cricket Association has commended the national men's team for the progression of the ICC men's T20 sub-regional World Cup qualifiers Group B after winning the qualification series held in Rwanda. 
The event, which was the first stage of the qualification pathway in the African region, consists of two sub-regional qualifiers. According to the organizers, the top two teams from each event will progress to the regional final. The regional finals will be played in Namibia in 2023, where the top two sides in the regional final event will qualify for the 2024 ICC Men's T20 World Cup. In rugby news, South African national rugby team, the Springbok 7th coach Sandili Nkobo has expressed his satisfaction with the Springbok 7s who are still topping the World Rugby 7 series standings with three tournaments done in the 2023 season despite a fourth place finish at the Cape Town 7s on Sunday. The Springbok 7s consistency over the last two weekends mean they are still at the top of the World Series standings after three tournaments sharing first position with Samoa sharing their first position with Samoa. The top four teams at the end of the season will gain automatic qualification to the 2024 Olympic Games in Paris. In cycling news, the La Tropical Amisa Bongo Cycling Race has been scheduled to take place for January the 23rd to the 29th, 2023. The race is back after taking a hiatus due to the COVID-19 pandemic. And that's it on Daybreak African Sports. I am Samson Umale in Abuja, Nigeria. It's back to you, James, in Washington. Thank you, Samson. Have a good Monday. And that's it for this Monday, December 12th edition of Daybreak African.